We're looking at a text in Scripture, a couple verses, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, which are very important verses in terms of growth in the Christian life. What does it mean to grow? How do you grow spiritually? How do we look at 2013 as a growing year, as a year where we come to know Christ more intimately? I know that's the desire of all of our hearts is to be more like Jesus and we look at 2012 and perhaps we look with back with some disappointments. Maybe there are some spurts, some growth spurts in areas where you feel like you know Christ more or have been changed in particular ways. But as we look at 2013, I want us to begin to pursue holiness at greater levels that are, that are sought for in the Bible's way for spiritual growth. There is a biblical Christian balance that's struck in verses 12 and 13 that is unlike any other religion it's unlike any other philosophy of spiritual life this is the gospel way to grow verses 12 and 13 let me read Paul's words here therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's a lot of ways that people try to grow in the Christian life or in the name of Christ. There are some modes of thinking that create spiritual growth categories that miss the mark and can lead you astray even when you're trying in your, with your best efforts to grow where you find yourself not growing at all. Um, one category would be called pietism, piety, and even hyper-pietism where people add to the scripture ways that they can keep rules like following a rule book or a checklist to grow in. There is this sort of legalism that I was raised in or around in in the South where I come from in Virginia where there are these strictures of do's and don'ts where you feel like you're either achieving success in the Christian growth or failing egregiously and totally bummed out and discouraged by what you didn't do or what you just did that you want nobody to find out about. That is a form of legalism and is very dangerous. It's pietism. There's another category or mode of thinking in Christian growth that's the exact opposite of that called pacifism where people believe God is doing all the work and so I'm going to, and you've heard this phrase, let go and let God. Let God do all the work. I'm hitting a new stride or a deeper level of spirituality where God's taken over and I don't have to do anything. I was part of a youth group down in Florida for um, a six-week service time as an intern where they believed in deeper life Christianity, and I was sitting at a a dinner table with a friend of mine, and an elder was there, and he was talking about his spiritual life and his desire for holiness, and he said, you know, I don't think we have to sin at all from day to day, and it kind of got our attention, and then he he and his wife were sitting there, and we're kind of clinking forks and eating our food, and he said, you know, honey, as as you observe me today, it's five o'clock in the afternoon, as far as I know, unless you're telling me something otherwise, I haven't sinned at all today. 
And you're just, you know, I'm sitting there as an intern just eating my food and thinking, but didn't say, didn't say this, but I thought, uh, you just did. <laughs> you just sinned. It, it's hard to capture the Christian balance of our efforts in spiritual growth where the Bible very clearly calls us to work out our own salvation and at the same time trusting that God is working within us to perfect holiness in our lives. Philippians 1.6 promises that we're going to grow. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're growing in a not I but Christ sort of mindset. We're crucified with Christ. And yet, we are also called to throw off the flesh, to put off sinful habits, to put off sinful attitudes, and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called to, as Paul put it, fight the good fight of faith. We're called to pursue holiness. And so where is that balance struck? And I just want to tell you, finding that balance and striking that biblical balance is the key to softening the soil of your heart And it is the key to setting the conditions for you to grow most of all, even this year. There's a clear word from Scripture that says we are to work out our salvation. And that means to pursue holiness. But doing it while we rely on God's sovereign power. You know, there's another category I want to highlight as we launch into this. And that is a category that typically is applied to non-Christians, but I want to apply it to the Christian life, and that is the category of practical atheism. There's pacifism, there's pietism. I want to say there's practical atheism. Atheism means you don't believe in God, and I want to suggest that as Christians, it's very easy, and let me just even put it more personally. As Alaskans, as people from Anchorage, it's easy to get very, very busy in our lives to the point that we forget that God exists at all in your life. It's easy to become a practical atheist where you just check out on God. And you check in on Sunday mornings, you check in at Bible study time, but otherwise you're just sort of not remembering that God is present in your life and that he is working in you and that there's a real calling and responsibility for you to respond to God and pursue God day by day. Practical atheism. Maybe that's under the category of pacifism. I don't know, but it's checking out and on God. I was struck by a man's testimony who's a pastor at um, the late D. James Kennedy, um, his church, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. Some of you are familiar with, um, it was a TV show at, you know, on Christian TV where D. James Kennedy preached. Well, this man is Tullian Chavidian, and he assumed the pulpit there in 2009. And he's a 40-year-old man, and his kind of claim to fame is he is the grandson, one of the grandchildren of Billy and Ruth Graham. And so he's there in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. But his testimony struck me as I looked at it online. And he was saved as a 21-year-old but had been a rebellious teenager. And at 16, he was so rebellious that his parents called the cops on him and had him sent away. And he remembers distinctly sitting in the backseat of a police car, making eye contact with his mom and feeling no remorse about what was happening whatsoever. 
And that was in a Christian home, but he was rebelling against the Lord and had thought that he had now found his new freedom, chasing the things of the world harder than most others do, where he was seeking acceptance and affection and meaning and respect behind every worldly tree and bush he could look under. He wanted to belong, and so out of that testimony, he puts down on paper what it means to be a practical atheist. And this applies in his context to himself as an unbeliever, but I want to submit that this applies to us as we struggle and strive to stay engaged in a Godward mindset. Listen to this definition. It's on the screen as well. A practical atheist. A practical atheist is someone who lives and makes daily decisions as if God doesn't exist. Regardless of what he professes, this is someone who consciously or unconsciously disregards God and the Bible in how he approaches life. For a practical atheist, culture, cultural assumptions and societal trends are the guiding power for how he feels, thinks, and lives. Success is weighed by numbers. The importance of things is judged by material results and what can be seen in the present. The pleasures, comforts, cares, and status of the world are more solid and inviting than God or his word. You see how this could apply so far to daily Christian experience or practical atheism as a Christian? For a practical atheist, biblical truths are abstractions which do not guide everyday activities, nor have they captivated the heart. A practical atheist is a person whose worldview is characterized by worldliness, the sinful misdirection of God's good creation. Christians have tended to categorize worldliness in terms of, here's legalism, in terms of bad behavior, smoking, drinking, dancing, going to movies, getting a tattoo. Why is it that I want to go into a southern accent when I say that? Smoking, drinking, dancing, going to movies, getting a tattoo. Excuse me. Wearing certain types of clothing, clothes and listening to certain types of music are included on the list, often unspoken of taboos within faith communities. However, this is not what primarily defines worldliness. Worldliness in the truest biblical sense is an internal, invisible problem before it becomes an external, visible problem. Worldliness, the lens through which the practical atheist views the world and life, views all the structures of the world, society, culture, material goods, and self, as bigger and more real than God. Everything else in life is far bigger than the presence and person of God. Let me just submit to you this. If you are not growing spiritually, this is your problem. You have a worldly worldview or grid that you are thinking through. Your heart is captivated by the world and you believe that the world and yourself and your life are bigger than God. And the world is more real to you than God. And when you are growing spiritually, God is bigger than this world and he's more real to you and let me just add satisfying for you than the world. Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13 show us a big God that is very engaged in your Christian spiritual growth. He's present and 
being recaptivated by God's presence and his work in you is a very powerful motivation for you to grow and for you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In verses 12 and 13, it is no mere idiom or turn of the phrase that Paul is using where he's saying you need to work something out because God is working within. That is the biblical balance of spiritual growth. You're working something out while God is working within you. It's your responsibility and God's sovereignty. That always brings up that tricky mystery of the Christian life where you say, well, who's doing it? Who starts? Where does it all work itself out? Well, let me just quote to you the church father, Augustine, who put it this way. He said, quote, our deeds are our own because of the free will producing them. And they are also God's because of his grace causing our free will to produce them. It's capturing that balance. Again, quote, God makes us do what he pleases by making us desire what we might not desire. So why do you grow? Well, you grow because of a will-filled decision that was prompted by the divine, sovereign, inner working of God and his Holy Spirit to drive you to himself. It's a balance, and it's struck here in Philippians, and as it is many other places in Scripture. Well, to try to capture this balance, I've headed the outline this way. Christians grow when two wills are at work. Your will and God's will. Two wills are at work. And please don't misunderstand me to put both wills on equal status here. I believe God is the one who behind the scenes is prompting our desires as we make decisions to follow him in holiness. But two wills are very much at work. Let's begin with the believer's will. The believer's will is engaged as a believer grows through active submission. Don't miss that concept. It's active. You're being proactive. You're not passive. But it is going for God with a submissive heart. It's holiness through helplessness. You're pursuing Christ by God's grace. Therefore, verse 12 begins with the word, therefore. Look at this word. It's a word that connects everything to what we've been learning over the past few weeks in Philippians. We took several weeks, a week or so ago, on the gospel, and that's verses 5 through 11. 5 through 11 speaks of the humility of Christ. You remember he went from heaven and descended down all the way down to the cross and then three days later rose and is exalted where all of creation is poised and set to claim him as Lord or proclaim him as Lord, whether believer or unbeliever. That's the gospel. And the call to perfect holiness or pursue holiness as a believer is always in the New Testament church under the new covenant a response to the gospel. We are not called to follow rules and regulations. I believe in the injunctions and the clear um, exhortations and commands of scripture. But those commands are to point us to a person. We are called to follow Christ personally. 
not follow rules and regulations. Our obedience flows from thinking about Christ's humility. It's always that way. We say, why, do I, why should I be humble? Why should I be holy? Because I want to be like Jesus. Because he was humble. Because he is, he was, he will be holy. Because he humbled himself. I want to follow Christ's example. And so that's why I throw off the flesh. That's why I repent of sins as the Bible exposes them in my life. I'm not antinomian. I'm not trying to say we don't follow the law of Scripture. But we follow this New Testament law based on following Jesus. We want to find Jesus in the Scripture. He's revealed through this law, and we want to obey him and his personal commands to us spiritually. That's Christian growth. That's Christian living. The pagan religions of the world have an impersonal God that you fear out of duty, and you try to placate to make your life go okay. That is contradictory to what we find in scripture we've been brought near to christ and we follow him personally relationally and practically so the therefore is pointing to the gospel the gospel that saved you is what we respond to look at the phrase here it says as you also or as you have always obeyed there is the call to engage our wills in obedience the word obedience sometimes can immediately come under a, a non-Christian idea where people say, well, you've been talking about how we're not following laws. Why are you using the word obedience? Well, the word obedience, again, is in the context of what was just written, which is Christ. We're obeying a person. We're obeying him. It's all wrapped in relationship. Look at verse 12 again. Therefore, he says, my beloved, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. He loved, Paul loved this church. He had evangelized this church. He called them saints in chapter 1, verse 1. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He wanted this church to grow because he loved these people personally. This was kind of Paul's best friend church. There wasn't a whole lot going wrong at Philippi at this point. And he loved them personally. And he is encouraging them and saying, as you have always obeyed. He's saying, look, you're on the path of obedience. You're doing well. I want you to do even better. I want you to obey Christ more. And I, I feel that way about Anchorage Grace Church. I believe that as I preach the word of God to you, I'm preaching to believers and primarily, I am calling you to grow more from Scripture. And we all need that prompting and encouragement, just like Paul was giving them. Obeying. It's a balance. It's a biblical tension. The word obeying is hupa, hupakuo. Akuo in the Greek word is to hear something, to listen. It's the idea, almost like the metaphor of answering the door. God prompts the Christian with the word of God to obey, and it's like hearing the doorbell ring, and you go and you answer that call to submit to the word of God. There are things that God works in our hearts and in our lives where he reveals areas that we need to work on. And in this case... Literally, Paul is saying, work out your own 
salvation. Obey God's word and his call in our life. Growth begins with obedience from your will. And then secondly, growth takes personal ownership of your salvation. Look at this next phrase in verse 12. He says, so now, not only as in my presence, but more in my absence. You know what Paul is saying here? He's saying that you need to grab a hold of your salvation. There's no, uh, there's no concept here where you are trying to earn your salvation, but you are supposed to own your salvation. You are saved, and you need to respond to the fact that you're saved. And it's, there's a personal dimension here. There's a, there's a phrasing here where it's translated your own salvation. Now, Paul was speaking specifically to Philippi. They had some unique circumstances. Um, chapter 4 talks about Yodia and Sentichi, how they needed to get some things right. They could have been working some divisive things in the local church there that they needed to work on personally. There were some enemies of the cross that Philippians 3 talks about who were going against the gospel. In Philippians 1, verse 27 and 28, there's a reference specifically to the word salvation there. And that's in the context of staying unified and being of one mind because some opponents will come and try to disrupt the flock. So there were some immediate immediate contextual elements that the, Philipp, the, the church at Philippi needed to think through and say, okay, I need to work on some things spiritually as a church, corporately, and individually. But I want to call you to this. What is your own salvation situation? You're saved, but what is combating your Christian life? What is tempting you right now spiritually not to grow what's happening in your family context or in your church family context that's impeding your growth my friends it's important for all of us to take hold of our own salvation and say i am saved so what does that mean that i need to do how do i need to respond to my salvation i need to work something out I need to pursue holiness with vigor. You say, where is that in Scripture? Well, I've mentioned a couple places, but 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, it says, cleanse yourself from all defilement. That's active language. Ephesians 4 and Philippians also uses the same idea. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. You're saved. Walk in the worth of that salvation. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. That was Paul's mission statement. It's what he was all about. He was wanting to disciple people so that at the end of their life they would be spiritually holy. But then in verse 29 of Colossians 1, he says, For this, for this mission work, I toil, struggling with all his energy. The word toil there means Paul was an all-in type Christian. He was laboring to the point of being exhausted. That's what that word means. He was pursuing people with a vigor and passion for their holiness sake. He toiled. And it says struggling. That word is agonizomai. He agonized in the Christian life. Christianity and calling people to holiness, being holy, is a struggle. That's what Paul was all about. But he didn't do it by his own energy. Look at this. Colossians 1.29, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
A word energy, it's from the word energetai. It's, it's literally talking about God's power that moves us along in the Christian life. Have you ever sensed God's power? Like where you're going, you know, I, I know this person had a need, and I went and pursued them, and I was exhausted, you know, clocking out of work. I was tired, but I began to pray with that person. I began to read scripture to that person, listen to that person, and God strengthened me to keep going. You know, I, I didn't know how I was going to make it through this trial, this situation. I was going down. I was spiraling, kind of going down the drain, and I began to rely on the Lord, and somehow God gave me the power to get through. It's like running a race where you get your second wind. Suddenly, your breathing regulates, and you're able to keep going. Well, spiritually speaking, that's what Paul is talking about. So, who's working in the Christian life, Paul or the Holy Spirit? Well, it's that divine, invisible mystery where you volitionally say, I'm all in, and I'm going to pursue holiness, or I'm going to pursue holiness for the sake of others, and God is giving me the strength internally as I strive in holiness. It's a balance. 1 Corinthians 9, I'd ask you to turn over there with me. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, shows that Paul indeed was a sports fan. This gives me all um, free pass and, and excitement to sit and watch the playoffs that begin at 1230. Really, the playoffs didn't even begin until 1230 today because the Redskins are playing that terrible Northwestern team called the Seahawks. We'll be out early today. But anyway, uh, Paul was a sports fan. He understood what it meant to pursue victory and pursue the prize. And he used a lot of sports metaphors, running like a marathon runner to pursue the prize, to run those miles and miles to the finish line. That was a metaphor for the Christian life. Verse 24, he says, I do not... Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? He's talking about as a Christian, you run like someone who wants to win. Winners win because of conditioning and practice, but I think primarily because of mindset. In the Christian life, you grow when you have your game on by the power of the Spirit. Like he goes on, he says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. That exercising of self-control is a reference to the practice field, to working out. Paul, he would have seen different events and Olympic games um, in the you know, Corinthian and Greco-Roman um, regions. He would have seen athletes, wrestlers, boxers, runners competing and practicing and exercising to get ready. It's important to do that. He says, so I do not run aimlessly. Do, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body to keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul said that he basically pursued holiness so that he would not be a hypocrite. You pray, you read scripture, you pursue God, you get personal with the Lord, you examine yourself, you open yourself up before him, you open yourself up before others. That's the practice field of the Christian life where you're running the race and you're ready 
as the Lord brings challenges in your life, as he brings opportunities for you to minister, you're ready to compete. You're ready to exercise because you're the real thing. I've talked about this, um, how I've, I'm part of a water polo club that's been interesting for me. I'm three months in, and that has been um, you know, a real challenge. I'm not good at it, and I'm, I'm, I found out how unin shape I am by doing something as ludicrous as that. But I do it on Sunday nights, and it's a good way for me to, you know, sort of dunk my head after Sunday morning and try to come up, you know, for new life going into the next week. So it's fun to do. It's good evangelism as well as most people there are unsaved. But um, but I practice a lot during the week to make myself ready for Sunday. But if my mindset isn't I've got Sunday night coming, and if I don't get in the pool three or four or five times during the week, then I'm going to die, then I would never swim. I have swam more out of just this, this accountability that Sunday is coming than I have ever in my entire life, and it's been great. But spiritually speaking, it's the same idea. You have to understand that God is interested in your spiritual growth. He is working within your spiritual desires, trying to bring you along to prepare you to compete for him spiritually, to win people to Christ, to teach the word of God, to disciple people, to serve in new ways, to give in new ways, to go for it at new levels. But you've got to practice with a mindset that there's more coming for you to do. You have to equip yourself to live the Christian life and be who you need to be for others. Well, again, it takes obedience from your will, and then it takes personal ownership of your salvation, realizing that your sufficiency is in Christ. So look again at verse 12. I want to highlight this one phrase. It says, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. You know what Paul is saying there? He's saying, look, I have been your spiritual mentor, and perhaps I've been your spiritual life support, but you're not always going to have me. Paul is basically saying, I might die under execution here because I'm in prison, and they do that to prisoners in Rome. And so if you have pursued Christ because of my personal accountability, you need to pursue him even more when I'm not present. Do you see that? The accountability for spiritual growth always has to be chiefly God. He's the one that, whenever I've grown, has caused it. His accountability. Uh, the Hebrew word for holiness, or glory rather, is heaviness. It's kavod. It, it means heaviness or weight. And the weight of God's accountability is what should cause us to grow. A lot of people go to a Christian school, college. They have part of parachurch ministries or Bible church or Bible um, studies within the church. These kinds of things are great and wonderful and can help us grow. But if they become the primary accountability in our lives for why we grow, when the life support system comes off and the Bible study ends or you finish your time at Christian school or somebody moves away that you've been overly needy um, you know, with spiritually, then suddenly if, you're, if your support system was on man or a program and that's gone the life support comes off suddenly you'll start to shrink 
And the true test of knowing whether or not you're growing because of God's accountability or because of being needy with another person and their accountability, the true test is when that accountability is gone, how do you respond? Now, I'm not trying to take away from ministries, Bible studies, or relationships. I mean, the whole doctrine of discipleship runs through the New Testament. Paul, Timothy, relationship, Christ, disciples. I believe in the one and others. I believe in the community of the saints. But the chief and primary resource and accountability for the Christian who grows is God. It's always God. And you'll see that profoundly clear in verse 13. But building out of that, let me just keep working on, um, keep moving on. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I want to just also hit on one other idea here as we're moving through the idea of working out your own salvation. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church will use a verse like this to promote its theology of spiritual growth. And I don't want in any way for you to be confused based on what Paul is saying and what the Roman Catholic Church promotes. Uh, in general, the Roman Catholic Church will promote a combination of us growing ourselves by God's grace and a loyalty to the church to infuse grace into our lives so that we grow. It's basically combining God's grace and man's effort to be saved. And the Roman Catholic Church will basically say you enter into salvation by being baptized into the church and by going to confession for your sins and by receiving saving grace through the church as you participate in Mass and as you finally come to death's door and you receive absolution or absolvo, forgiveness from a Catholic priest. And some of you come out of a Roman Catholic background and you know um, about that particular way of salvation. But I don't believe that's um, the way of saving grace at all when you combine man's work with the work of the church. Actually, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that there are two kinds of sins that you perform, and one is venial sins, which are the slighter, more heart attitude sins, which are forgivable, and then there are mortal sins, and mortal sins are those where you lose saving grace in the Roman Catholic Church um, religion. You lose saving grace altogether if you commit a mortal sin. In other words, if you commit adultery, if you murder someone, if you steal, if you do certain levels of sins, then you are removed from saving grace. Your soul is actually put in jeopardy and it spiritually dies when you commit those mortal sins. In fact, if you commit a mortal sin as a Roman Catholic believer, even if you were baptized into the church and receiving mass and, and doing these things, if you commit a mortal sin, unless you um, perform the act of penance with a priest where you are absolved, you will go to hell. That is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, and it builds its theology on a verse like verse 12, where you are literally working out your own salvation to save you. Now, this is why theological words are important because this is the difference between what the Roman Catholic Church believes and what the Protestant Church believes. Protestant Christianity, or I believe New Testament Christianity, um, understands the word salvation in two ways. One, in terms of justification. Justification is where you are saved at a point in time by God. 
It's what God does by a legal declaration where he saves you and puts you in protected positional grace where, like Romans 8 talks about, nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Once you're saved, no matter what you do after you're saved, you are saved eternally. And it begins now, positionally, not by works, but by God's grace alone. It's a legal declaration where when he looks down upon you because you've repented and you've believed, he says, I justify you. You are pronounced not guilty and completely righteous, protected for heaven. That's justification. And then from that salvation, you then are sanctified for the rest of your Christian life. And justification is different than sanctification. Sanctification is a category of spiritual growth where you are responding to the fact that you were saved, and so now you are working out your salvation or responding to justification, working because you were saved and growing. You don't work to save yourself. You work because you are saved. You see the distinction? In the Roman Catholic Church, there's a blurring between justification and sanctification, and they just all call it the call it all salvation, but the New Testament understanding, as I understand salvation from Scripture, is that you are saved at a point in time, and because you're saved, you grow in sanctification, which can also be called salvation, and that's where it could be confusing. Salvation here in verse 12 is talking about Christian growth because you're saved. That's verse 12. That's what you're working out with fear and trembling. You know, the, the Bible's clear. Romans 3, 20, Paul says, by the works of the law, no man shall be justified. You don't save yourself by doing anything ever. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works. It's not by anything you've ever done that saves you and, and you're not kept saved by working. You're saved by God's grace alone, and then you bear the fruit of salvation because the Spirit of God is conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. Salvation. So these, these terms are important to know as a Christian. I know we don't use the words justification or sanctification in daily conversation, but it's important for Christians to be captivated by certain salvation terms because they clarify what's going on spiritually in your life. If you want to grow, you've got to know you're saved and respond to that and respond to the accountability of what God has done for you in Christ. Verses 5 through 11 of Philippians 2. Well, work out your salvation. Now, let's, let's move on. Um, again, by way of review, the believer's will is growing by active submission. Growth begins with obedience from your will. Growth takes personal ownership of your salvation, and growth takes utter dependence upon your God. And that, we pick up on this in the phrase at the end of verse 12, with fear and trembling. This is an interesting phrase. Fear and trembling. It's actually Paul using a phrase that was used again and again in the Old Testament based on how unbelievers were responding to God's presence. Unbelievers, when they encountered God, pagans, when they encountered God, and specifically God's people in the Old Testament, they shook. They shook with fear and trembling. 
That's where this phrase comes from. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites were, were performing the exodus out of Egypt, they, would, they were approaching Canaan, the promised land. And the Bible says that the Edomites and the Canaanites and the Moabites were shaking with, with dread and trembling. Literally, they were dreading God's people who were coming because they had heard about the signs and wonders that God had performed on their behalf back in Egypt. So they were dreading their approach. And the army of Israel was coming and they were fearing them. They saw that the Israelites were conquering kings as they were moving into Canaan and they were dreading their presence. Deuteronomy 2 and 11 picks up on this. Isaiah 19 talks about the Egyptians who in the future at the millennial kingdom where pagan Egyptians will dread with fear and trembling the presence of God in the church. Psalm 55.5 also uses this phrase fear and trembling in terms of the unbeliever dreading death and fearing death. It's it's shaking. Now, how is that applied to the Christian? That's my question. That's what I was wondering. How is Paul using fear and trembling in verse 12? I mean, are we supposed to be afraid that we might lose our salvation? Is that Christian growth? Are we supposed to be afraid that we're probably or possibly not saved as we pursue Christ? I don't think so. I don't think so. Paul uses this phrase in other places that can clarify this. 1 Corinthians, when he was approaching a very sinful church in 1 Corinthians 2, he was commending them saying, listen, I approached you with fear and trembling in my ministry. And he was commending them because they received his ministry. What's Paul talking about? Approaching the church with fear and trembling. And then in 2 Corinthians 7.15, he says, after they had repented, he's saying, look, you received Titus, my brother in the Lord, with fear and trembling. He uses that phrase again. Ephesians 6, 5 says that slaves, when they're saved and they, they're still in a slave relationship to a master, they need to serve their, their masters with this fear and trembling. What does that mean? Well, I like to use the word here for fear and trembling as helplessness, um, dependence, weakness. In the Christian life, we should look at how a pagan was afraid of the presence of God and apply that as a New Testament believer saying, listen, that's the same God that we're dealing with, and I want to come to him with awe, with reverential fear and helplessness. Not that I'm afraid he's going to separate me from himself, or not that my salvation is in jeopardy at all. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying a com coming before the Lord with a humility where your soul is quaking before who God is. Let me put it to you this way. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And even though your relationship to God changed when you became a Christian, you became a son or daughter of God, and he became your father, guess what? He's still the same God. Think about Isaiah in Isaiah 6, the most holy man in Israel. When he came into the presence of God, he was saying, woe is me, I am undone. Um, Ezekiel, same thing, fell as a dead man. John in the New Testament, when he saw the apocalyptic vision of Revelation, fell as a dead man. It's the same God we're dealing with. And so even though we have a relationship to the Lord as, a, as he is our father, 
he's still no one to be trifled with. It's not, I mean, it is like our relationship that we've had with our parents. But you got to understand, this father sees through you and in you and knows what's going on. He's not surprised by you. You don't get to manipulate him whatsoever as your father. I mean, I'll discipline my kids and sometimes well and sometimes not well. And, and it's imperfect discipline. But God's discipline is perfect. I mean, there are all kinds of very scary ways God could choose to get your attention, right? There are all kinds of things that he could bring into your life circumstantially to wake you up. That's something that we need to approach God knowingly in helplessness, in fear, in trepidation. Trusting a God who is holy and all-powerful. Trusting a God who could say, listen, I want you to wake up and I want you to be holy, so I'm just going to take you now. I'm just going to allow for something to happen where you're coming home now. <laughs> I mean, that's the God that we're dealing with. I've read to my kids um, the, most of the Chronicles of Narnia. I read um, things like that out loud to keep my attention. I'm not you know, a gifted fiction reader, but I like to read um, fiction to them to watch their faces respond to it. But I've found some very profound um, thoughts and truths in the narrative um, there's actually a Bible study, I think, that's continuing, by the way, this semester on C.S. Lewis on Wednesday nights that you might want to find out about in the bulletin. But um, C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe um, highlights this idea of how God is terrifying and strong and powerful and wild, and at the same time, he's good. You remember in the story maybe of... Uh, you know, the children that were in Narnia, Lucy specifically at the house where Mr. and Mrs. Beaver were conversing with them in, in you know, Narnia land. And they're talking about Aslan. And Mrs. Beaver was promoting, you know, this God figure, Aslan the lion, to these children to introduce them to him. And Lucy says, uh, is Aslan safe? If he's this terrifying lion. Um, safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He is the king, I tell you. And then later on at the end of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe story, after you know, they had conquered the White Witch and you know, everything was being reconciled um, in Narnia, Aslan disappears and kind of he's here and gone type thing. And Lucy was concerned about that. And again, asking Mr. Beaver... Um, she said, where'd he go? Will he be back? And um, Beaver said, he'll be coming and going. One day you'll see him and another you won't. He doesn't like being tied down. And of course, he has other countries to attend to. He's quite all right. It's quite all right. He'll often drop in. Only you mustn't press him. He's wild, you know, not like a tame lion. Well, with this in mind, we're going to have to kind of close things off and, and go into communion. Next week, we'll pick up at verse 13, where we'll talk about God's very real, very passionate involvement in your spiritual life, even to the level of our own desires. Even though, let me just put this as a teaser out for next week, even though we are to approach God in utter helplessness and fear and trembling, God is passionate about your spiritual growth, so much so that he's involved in prompting your own desires for you to want him. 
Let me just ask this question. Why would he choose to do that in your life? Scripture really doesn't give a very clear reason. The reason God wants you to grow and be like Jesus is because he wants you to grow and be like Jesus. The answer is because he loves you. So though we approach him as holy God who is awesome and someone to be feared, we also know that he's our loving father who is deeply and intimately and personally involved even to the depth of our own desires for wanting him. You know, just to come back to the testimony of, remember that guy Tullian, the pastor at Coral Ridge Presbyterian, Chavidian, Tullian Chavidian, I want to pick up on his testimony. What happened to him? He was 21. It says, one morning, this is his testimony, I woke up with an aching head and a sudden stark awareness of my empty heart. It said, having returned to my apartment after another night of hard partying on Miami's South Beach, I'd passed out with all my clothes on. I'm sharing this, again, under the idea of practical atheism. This is how Christians sometimes check out on God and perhaps... So one of you here or some of you here don't yet know the Lord, and maybe you can understand things through his experience. He says, hours later, I was stirred to a vacant, painful awareness. I realized it was Sunday morning. I was so broken and longing for something transcendent, for something higher than anything this world has to offer that I decided to go to church. I didn't even, it, I didn't even change my clothes. I jumped up and ran out the door. So he arrived late at church and there was no seating except up in the balcony. He says, it wasn't long before I realized how different everything was in this place. I immediately sensed the distinctiveness of God. He said he didn't really prefer the music or the style, but that was irrelevant. Those were non-issues because everything about that church service was to honor God. He said, why had it grabbed his attention? says, I was on the receiving end of something infinitely larger than grand impressions of human talent. God was on full display. It was God, not the preacher or the musicians, who was being lifted up for all to see. Rather, the people of God were simply honoring God as God. Listen, if you want to grow spiritually this year, this is kind of a part two to last week's sermon about spiritual disciplines. If we want to grow, God has to be the consuming reality of our day-to-day. -day. We can't be practical atheists. If you don't yet know the Lord, if you've never experienced the power of God, if you've not started growing yet, perhaps you've not come to Christ yet. But the Lord wants you to come to him and I would just ask you, open your heart to Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And suddenly God will become your all-consuming passion and you'll want to grow. Let's not be practical atheists. Let's put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make him the chief object of our affection and grow for him this year. Let's pray. Father, as we transition to a communion.